Numbers chapter 9, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there. Uh, We'll be starting in verse 15 in a little bit. Uh, So today is the second Sunday of Lent, uh, and we are continuing this journey in the wilderness together. All right, so I mentioned last week we started uh, beginning in the book of Numbers. And one thing that we learned together last week was that the title of the book is kind of misleading. And not only is it misleading, it's also not even the original title of the book. The book was given the title Numbers by translators who worked through that first chapter and had to translate the census that Israel took. And they were like, wow, look at all these numbers. And they just wrote that at the top, and that was the name of the book that stuck. But the original Hebrew title of the book is Bamidbar, which is the Hebrew phrase in the wilderness. And that's the original title of the book, and it's a much more accurate title. Because though the book does have numbers in it, we looked at them last week, it really is sort of this action-packed adventure story of Israel's journey in the wilderness. That's what this story is about. And who doesn't love a good adventure story, right? As I was reading the passage today, I was thinking of the many sort of adventurous origin stories of nations, right? So for America, we've got that, you know, Christopher Columbus story, uh, sailing the seas, or for here in the Pacific Northwest, we have the story of Lewis and Clark. Right, who pioneered their way to the Northwest. Uh, and in some sense, this adventure kind of gets baked into our national identity. Uh, and so I was thinking about some of these stories, but I was also thinking about that Scottish origin story of William Wallace, right, portrayed in the great action-adventure movie, Braveheart. All right, and I've talked about Braveheart before, but uh, this movie has a lot packed into it, and one of the deep dichotomies of this movie is the stark contrast between William Wallace and the English royalty, right? King Longshanks. William Wallace and his men are out on the front lines of the battlefield, while Longshanks, the king, gives orders from his castle. And Prince Edward, his son, is sort of cowering in fear in some corner. Right? And this is how you know that William Wallace is the hero. Because he is the one that's actually out there doing stuff. But the way of Longshanks is still actually quite prevalent today. In our own culture, after all, presidents don't go into battle. They send soldiers to go into battle for them. You know, or business owners, they don't Typically, these days, go door-to-door selling things. Rather, they hire uh, advertisers and media people and web developers and so on. You see, for much of history, so-called leaders are not actually the ones on the front lines, but rather just the ones who send other people to the front lines. Right? So, what about... Israel, national origin adventure story. Book of Numbers. Who is the hero on the front line? The one leading the way? Well, what we're going to see in our passage today is that, yes, 
God does work through Moses and Aaron and Miriam. God does appoint leaders of various tribes and that sort of thing. We read their long list of names in chapter 1. But what we'll see made especially clear in our passage today is that God does not just send other people out to the front. God himself is the one who leads the way. So last week we saw Israel taking stock of themselves by taking the census and then setting up their camp with the tabernacle at its center. And this week we'll see Israel begin setting out at the leading of God. So Numbers chapter 9 will begin in verse 15. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant. And from evening until morning, it was over the tabernacle, having the appearance of fire. It was always so. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, then the Israelites would set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the Israelites would camp. And at the command of the Lord, the Israelites would set out. At the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they would remain in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle, many days the Israelites would keep the charge of the Lord and would not set out. Sometimes the cloud would remain a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they would remain in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud would remain from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they would set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days, or a month, or a longer time, but the cloud continued over the tabernacle, resting upon it, the Israelites would remain in camp and would not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the command of the Lord, they would camp. At the command of the Lord, they would set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for being a God who leads and guides us. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the book opened with that long list of names and numbers and lengthy descriptions of the tribes around the tabernacle, right? That was chapters 1 and 2. We looked at last week. But here in chapter 9, they finally set out on their wilderness journey. And this passage is a description of how this journey took place, how it happened. The core of the passage is, I think, found kind of in verses 17 and 18. Whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, then the Israelites would set out. In the place where the cloud settled down, there the Israelites would camp. At the command of the Lord, the Israelites would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. And as we consider this and, and hear the whole passage, you can hear kind of this rhythm in the words 
and in the phrases. You know, when the cloud lifted up, the people set out. When the cloud settled down, the people returned. At the word of the Lord, the people set out. At the word of the Lord, the people returned. Right? It has this repetition and this rhythm to it. Many scholars think that this passage may have been kind of a song or a chant that they would say together as they went on their wilderness journey. It's kind of their, their theme song as they went along. There's this rhythm and there's this repetition. All right, That phrase, at the command of the Lord, occurs seven times throughout the passage. I doubt that's an accident. Right? We see it in verses 18, 20, and 23. It occurs three times with at the word of the Lord, they set out. And three times, at the word of the Lord, they would remain, set camp. And then one time, it appears just on its own. So this is kind of like the chorus that the song returns to again and again. And in between, the verses of the song build up, describing the setting out and the camping. Sometimes a day, sometimes two, sometimes a month, sometimes a few. Right? This is the song that they would sing, but no matter what, when the cloud lifted up, the people set out, and when the cloud settled down, the people would come. At the word of the Lord, the people set out. At the word of the Lord, the people would come. This wilderness song tells us something significant, I think, about God and about God's people. And it is this. God is a God who acts. And the people of God are people who respond. God acts, and we respond. This truth is an essential element in good theology, in authentic worship, and in our life on mission. All right? So I want to talk about each piece of this together a little bit this morning. God acts. And we respond. So first, God is a God who acts. This is what we see in the passage. It's not only the command of the Lord telling them where to go, but it is actually the presence of the Lord in this cloud leading the way. You see, God does not lead like Longshanks from a castle in the sky. God is much more like William Wallace, leading from the ground, leading on the front lines. God is a God who acts. And we see this right from the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created, right? God could have done nothing. He could have remained in the comfort and ease of eternal bliss with himself. But he didn't. God created. God chose to act. And after creation, God didn't just wander away, pleased with his little project, right? He remained present. God remained active with Adam and Eve, with Cain and Abel, with Noah and his family. It was God who called Abraham. Moses, and David. It was God who met Hagar, spoke through Miriam, and vindicated Bathsheba. 
It was God who called Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And ultimately, it is God who came to earth as Jesus to announce the kingdom, to give his life, and to conquer death. And it is God who will come again to make all things new. Who is the hero of the story? It's God. You see, God is a God who acts. A God intimately involved in the world. And yes, there are times that we cannot see his movement clearly. There are times when the cloud stays put, right? Sometimes a day, sometimes two, sometimes a month, sometimes a few. But even in those times, when our spiritual life feels dry, whenever we feel lost in the wilderness, whenever God's presence is not easily noticeable, even then, God is still the one act. And we are the ones who respond. That leads us to that second part. God acts and we respond. And I want you to hear that. As the people of God, everything that we do is a response to something that God is already doing. As the people of God, everything that we do is in response to something that God is already doing. This fundamental truth sets Christianity and ancient Israel apart from other religions. This is the difference between dead religion and living faith. This is why in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, Paul keeps pointing back that story in Genesis where it says that Abram believed the Lord and it was counted as righteousness. You see, Abraham didn't set off on his journey to get God's attention. Right? Rather, God called him and Abraham responded in trust. Abraham believed. As the people of God, everything we do is a response to what God is already doing. And so in ancient religions and these other religions, people had feasts and they made sacrifices in order to get the attention of the gods. And in order to appease the wrath of all the gods, the gods would not come down and destroy them. But this is not the case with Israel. Israel did have feasts, and they did make sacrifices, but it was not to get God's attention. Rather, it was in response to what God had already done. The feast of the Passover was a celebration of God delivering them from Egypt. The Feast of Weeks was a celebration to remember when God gave them the law and Mount Sinai. And on and on it goes. The feasts and festivals are not meant to get God's attention. 
They are a response to the things that God has already done to remind the people, this is who your God is. And the same is true of their sacrifices. Israel did not offer sacrifices to appease God or to get God's attention. That's nowhere to be found. Rather, their sacrifices were a sign of the covenant that God had made with them. The sacrifices that the Israelites made were a response to what God had already done. Not to earn any kind of favor with them. This is why again and again, in the Psalms and the prophets, we hear God saying to the people, I don't want the blood of bulls and goats. The sacrifice that I want is a broken heart. I don't want you to try to get my attention. I want to know that you have my attention. I want to know that you're paying attention to me. The people of God are not those who have performed well enough or lived righteously enough to earn God's favor. Rather, they are those who have been transformed by God's favor, favor and respond with lives of justice and righteousness. This has always been true from the ancient Israelites on to today. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 2 when he writes, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of work so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us. Created in Christ Jesus. For good works, Which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Paul is saying that our good works don't earn God's attention. Rather, anything good that we do is a response to God's grace in our lives. Everything we do is a response to something that God has already done. This is essential to good theology. This is the reason why we gather to worship. And this is the foundation to our call as a people on mission in the world. Right? We cross the streets in the community because we believe that God is actually up to something out in the community. We partner for peace because we believe that there is something of the kingdom to discover, not only here, in the church, and in our Bible studies, but out there, where God is actively at work to redeem and restore the world. God is acting, so we respond, and we join him. This is the pattern of faith. This is the pattern of Christian life. And this is not just a practical way that we live. It is core to our identity as God's people. This dynamic interaction, God's active presence in the people's faithful response 
is what actually defines us as the people of God. Back in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up to you. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. You see, this interaction is what makes God's people distinct. The actual presence of God going with the people of God is what makes God's people distinct in the world. And we see the same thing happen with Jesus' disciples. In John chapter 6, there are many people who start abandoning Jesus and turning away from him. And Jesus turns to his disciples and asks, Do you also? Wish to go away? And Peter responded, To whom can we go? You have the words of life. This dynamic interaction of the presence of God leading the people of God is core to not just what we do, but who we are. When the cloud lifted up, People set out. When the cloud settled down, the people returned. At the word of the Lord, the people set out. At the word of the Lord, the people returned. So this is all great, right? This is the, the roots of, of good theology, good philosophy of worship and mission. God acts and we respond. But how does this actually work? How do we do this? Well, in number nine, verses 19 and 23, we see this phrase, that they kept the charge of the Lord. Another way of saying it is that they kept watch. They kept watch of God. In order to follow the movement of the cloud and the command of the Lord, they had to keep watch. And they had to listen. And so I want to ask the question, how do we do that today? How do we watch for God's movement in the world? How do we listen for God's word today? Well, I think that there are actually some really practical ways that we can do this. And we see this in the example of the early church. So we're going to get there in a second, but you see that the context in Numbers here is that the people of Israel came through the water of the Red Sea. They received the law that came down from the smoke and fire of Mount Sinai, and then they were led by the presence of God out into the wilderness. That's the context of what we're reading here. There's another story that's quite similar. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. In the very same way, Jesus came up out of the water for baptism. Just like they came through the water, the Red Sea. Jesus received the Spirit that came down like a dove. Just like they received the law that came down from Mount Sinai. And then Jesus was led out into the wilderness. 
คิดที่จะโหวตแต่ทุกครั้งที่คิดอย่างนั้น These are two stories that go together, but I think there's actually even another one that has some of the same ingredients of water, spirit, and the presence of God. Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. If you want to flip over there, I want to take a quick look at a passage from it. Acts chapter two. The Spirit comes. Among the early church, like tongues of fire and a rushing wind, and then Peter goes out and he preaches, and thousands of people respond in baptism, and then the powerful presence of God begins to move among the people, and right in the midst of all of this action, there's a description of some really practical things. To keep the people rooted in the presence and the story of God, really practical ways to keep watch the movement of God. Look in verse 42. I also have this on the screen. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone. Because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved, and so we've got these same ingredients: deliverance through the water, the presence of the Spirit, and the guidance of God. And so here's what I want to leave you with today: God acts, we respond, and we keep watch of God's activity in the world by devoting ourselves. The very same thing that we see here: the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer, and a community of generosity. Each of these practices keeps us rooted in the presence and the story of God, so that we can see God's activity and respond, so that we can sense God's leading. Follow. I just want to say a brief thing about each one of these as we wrap up. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching by diving into the words of Scripture. Right? These words, stories, and teachings keep us rooted in who God is. As we discern His activity in the world, it keeps us from just making God into whoever we want Him to be. But we root it in the words of these faithful teachings and stories. But we must also devote ourselves to fellowship, because we cannot discern God by ourselves. We can't even really discern Scripture by ourselves, right? This is something that we are to do together. 
We need a community to discern together, to live life together, to get a pulse on what's going on in the world. And we also devote ourselves to breaking of bread. And this is not only an extension of fellowship, but it's also remembering the time that Jesus broke bread with his disciples. We do this every week. We come together and we break bread and receive the cup. And every time we do this, we are again rooted in the great story of God, remembering that it is God who acts. It is God who has set this people. And it's we who respond and receive. Unless we think that keeping watch is only Bible study, fellowship, and food, we've got to add that we must devote ourselves to prayer. Because the church is not a social club. We don't just hang out with each other. We also turn to God together. And I hope that we can be a community that's just as comfortable talking with God together as we are talking with each other. I hope that in our conversations with one another, that that turn from how are you doing to, hey, let's pray, can be flipped and natural. Because we're a people of prayer. And I hope that we can go deeper in both our prayer and our fellowship. And finally, we see in the rest of this passage that the early church was devoted to lives of generosity as they shared all things in common and opened up their homes in hospitality. Again, the church is not a social club. It's not just a place where we go to get spiritual products and services. It is a community that calls us into something. And therefore, it's a community that fosters us as we grow in generous living, we begin to open our eyes to seeing God more clearly. For just as you gave to least of you, so also you give to me. That Jesus said. So this is my challenge to you this week. Take some time to reflect on each one of these practices that the early church devoted themselves to. And I'll remind you again of, of our booklet that we have, uh, of daily readings and reflections. Each day this week, if you're following that, we'll spend some time reflecting on one of these practices and digging a little bit deeper into it. So if you don't have one of those, grab one on your way out. I think that can be a tool uh, for us in this season. As we devote ourselves we keep watch of God's movement in the world. We root ourselves once again in God's great story so that we can respond in worship and follow his mission. When the cloud lifted up, people set out. When the cloud settled down, people would come. But the word of the Lord People set out 
at the word of the Lord, the people might be saved. 